Welcome to the first season of Murder and 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Abraham Shakespeare. The name makes me wonder if his mother named him after Abraham Lincoln and William Shakespeare in hopes that a combination of their names would bring him a good life. But that wasn't to be. When Abraham was 13, he was arrested for stealing from a convenience store and sent to juvenile reform school until he was 18. Over the next 10 years, he was arrested multiple times, mostly for nonviolent crimes, such as driving without a license, loitering, and not paying child support. But he was also convicted of assault on his girlfriend, which landed him in prison for a while. He was released in 1995 and went to live with his mother in Florida. Abraham tried to go down the right path, then worked odd jobs, everything from garbage collector to dishwasher. He could read and write, but just barely. On Wednesday, November 15, 2006, he was working as an assistant truck driver, making eight bucks an hour, unloading boxes from a tractor trailer for fast food restaurants. He was working with Michael Ford that day. On their way to a delivery in Miami, they drove through the small town of Frostproof and stopped at a convenience store. Michael hopped out of the driver's seat to buy his soda and asked Abraham if he wanted anything. He opened his wallet. He had five bucks. He took two of it and handed it to Michael for quick pick tickets with the Florida Lotto. Later that day, he gave his last three dollars to a homeless man. But Abraham was okay with that. That's just who he was. As long as he could get by, he liked to help others. That night, the lottery numbers were 6, 12, 13, 34, 42, and 52. Every number matched the numbers on his ticket. Abraham had just won $30 million. By Friday, he was in the Tallahassee Lottery Office. Surrounded by his family, he held up that big check. Abraham had become a multimillionaire at age 41. But he vowed the money wouldn't change him. Rather than take the whole amount in installments, he chose a lump sum payment of $16.9 million, and after taxes he took home just over $11 million. That was a lot of money for someone who'd never had a bank account, driver's license, or a credit card. Two months later, in an interview with the Herald Tribune, Abraham told the reporter that he still makes sure he doesn't spend more than $7 on a meal at Denny's, and he still picks up pennies off the ground. He went on to say that since winning the lottery, he hasn't been happy. In fact, he was miserable. People were hounding him and harassing him, asking him for money. He did splurge a little on himself, a million dollars on a home ten miles from his old neighborhood in Lakeland, a tan-colored house with brick accents that sat behind stately black iron gates. It was massive, almost 7,000 square feet. Abraham also shared his newfound fortune with his family, he gave his stepfather $1 million and three sisters $250,000 each. Abraham had many faults, including being a criminal, but he was a generous man. People were constantly asking him for money, and he couldn't say no. He paid off mortgages of people he knew, and even some he didn't know. 
He paid for funerals, rent electricity bills, and handed out $100 bills to the homeless. Five months after winning the lottery, things were about to get more complicated for the new millionaire. In April 2007, Michael Ford, the co-worker who bought the lottery ticket for Abraham, sued him, claiming he'd bought it for himself and accused Abraham of stealing it out of his wallet. Abraham showed up for the trial, dressed in a pinstripe suit, blue dress shirt and tie. The jury had to decide who to believe, Michael or Abraham. And the case took a substantial turn when the court heard testimony from five of Abraham's co-workers, who all testified that Michael told them he had purchased a ticket for Abraham. It was only after he won the lottery that he changed his story. So in October, a jury decided that the lottery winnings rightfully belonged to Abraham. Afterwards, he told the Tampa Tribune his goal is to be able to wake up in the morning, get a fishing pole, and go fish, or go hunting, or golfing. In the two years after he won the lottery, Abraham had spent, loaned, or given away most of his fortune, and only had about a million and a half left in cash. That's when he met Dee Dee. In November 2008, Doris Moore, also known as Dee Dee, attended a business conference in Kissimmee and arranged to accidentally bump into Barbara Jackson, the realtor who sold Abraham his new house. She claimed she was a writer and wanted to write a story about Abraham, maybe even a book. So a few weeks later, Barbara arranged a meeting between Dee Dee and Abraham, and Dee Dee quickly ensconced herself into Abraham's life. Although she met him on the premise of writing a book, she took on the role of his financial advisor and kept track of who he lent money to and who he bought things for. Abraham's girlfriend, Tori, and their young son had moved in with him in his new house, but when Dee Dee showed up, she tried to drive a wedge between the couple, telling him that Tori was after his money. Within two months of meeting Abraham, Dee Dee talked him into selling all his assets to her. On January 9, 2009, she bought his house for $655,000, far less than the $1 million he'd paid just two years earlier. She also took over the responsibility of collecting money from the people he'd lent it to. One of those was his friend of 15 years, Greg Smith, his old boss at the barber shop. Abraham had lent him $65,000. Then a month later, she convinced Abraham to form a company where they both had signing authority. Together at the bank, they deposited a $1.1 million check. Then a few days later, she was back at the bank with minutes of a board meeting in which she was the only attendee and gave herself sole signing authority. Very quickly, she withdrew the money in large chunks. She moved her boyfriend of three years, Chirac Krasniki, into Abraham's house and on Valentine's Day gave him a $70,000 black Corvette. She bought herself a Hummer and went on vacations. February 16th was a special day, one that Abraham wouldn't forget. It was his mother's 68th birthday. He made sure to stop by her home. Her CD player wasn't working, so he took her his so she could listen to her gospel music, and he stayed a little while. On March 12th, Abraham drew up a will. He left his assets all to his mother, Elizabeth Walker. He wanted to make sure she was well taken care of, but she didn't want it. She called it the devil's money. Dee Dee was shuffling Abraham's money and assets around, fast and furious. He no longer owned any real estate or vehicles, and his money was disappearing quickly. He was getting concerned and started asking questions. 
Meanwhile, Michael's lawyer had filed an appeal. Abraham continued to hang out with his friends at his favorite spots. His brother Robert Brown remembers April 3rd. He told the Tampa Tribune they were hanging out at the food mart and Abraham was telling him that people wouldn't leave him alone and wouldn't take no for an answer when they asked for money. He also told Robert that he had to leave because somebody was after him. Someone was going to kill him. But Abraham didn't tell his brother who it was that was after him. Then when his brother mentioned he was going to this casino that evening, Abraham pulled out $2,000 and gave it to him and said he'd meet him there later. Robert played the slot machines until 4 a.m. waiting for him to show up. But Abraham never did. And a few weeks later, friends and family were realizing they hadn't seen or heard from Abraham. The appeals hearing was May 27th, and he was still missing. At the meat market where he liked to hang out with friends, a missing poster was taped to the window with a photo and description of Abraham. He was a big guy at 6 feet 5 inches and 190 pounds. A $5,000 reward was offered. Eddie Dixon pointed the poster and told the Tampa Bay Times, Only thing I know is that's my best friend. Y'all need to go ask that white woman where that man at. The woman he was referring to was Dee Dee Moore. She had been telling everyone that Abraham decided to leave because he couldn't take everyone always asking for money. Winning the lottery wasn't what he'd expected. His simple life had become so complicated, and she was just a good friend helping him out. Later, Dee Dee approached Greg Smith with an offer. She'd forgive his $65,000 debt if he helped her convince the police Abraham was in hiding. Greg agreed, and she paid him $300 to phone Abraham's mother, pretending to be her missing son. But a mother knows her child's voice, and she didn't believe it for a minute, and she told detectives it was an impersonator. Dee Dee also paid Greg to call David Wallace to say he'd seen Abraham in Miami. Only thing is, he didn't know David was with the sheriff's department. Now, police were continuing their investigation to Abraham's disappearance when they interviewed Greg. That's when they learned about Dee Dee. Now, Greg and Abraham had been good friends for a lot of years, and when police asked him to record his conversations with Dee Dee, he agreed. He even went so far as to cleverly design a recording device using a Red Bull can and took it with him everywhere. Finally, on November 9th, cousin Cedric Edom filed an official missing report for Abraham. The Sheriff's Department asked the public for any information and stated that if he was in hiding, that's fine. They just wanted to confirm he was okay. They also stated that his disappearance was suspicious and that homicide was a possibility. On December 5th, Dee Dee Moore told the ledger that she helped Abraham disappear but now wants him to return because detectives were searching her home and car, licking her blood on her belongings. She goes on to explain that one reason he wanted to leave was a child support case for a child he allegedly fathered after winning the lottery. A month later, on January 6, 2010, police named Dee Dee Moore as a person of interest in Abraham's disappearance. The Orlando Sentinel reported that Polk County Sheriff Grady Judd said, She's a con artist. Dee Dee Moore has cheated Abraham Shakespeare out of his money and possibly his life. He also released details that she had used his cell phone last April to text relatives and paid another relative $5,000 to deliver a birthday card to his mother in an attempt to prove he was her son. 
His mother also received a letter that someone who claimed to be her son had said, I'm grown and I don't have to come back. But she knew there's no way Abraham could have written that letter. Everyone in his family knew he could barely read or write. Then on January 25th, Dee Dee approached Greg to ask if he knew someone who was waiting to be sentenced to prison and would be willing to admit to murder for $50,000. The serial numbers would be ground off the murder weapon and their fingerprints placed on the gun. But for her plan to work, she also needed a body dug up, moved, and burned. Dee Dee told Greg there was a bonus in the deal for him. $67,000 had been buried with the body. Greg told her he would need rope, bleach, and garbage bags. Dee Dee stopped at a Walmart and picked up supplies, including gloves, plastic sheets, and duct tape, and paid in cash. She took Greg to a house near Plant City that she'd bought and put her in her boyfriend's name. She drew a diagram of precisely where to dig under the slab of cement to retrieve the body. She told him he would see a white substance, lime that had been poured over the body to dissolve it. That red ball can worked great. On January 27th, police descended on the house near Plant City, searching for the body. The Tampa Tribune reported that Polk County Sheriff Grady Judge commented, At this time, detectives are removing concrete, and we'll be searching under that slab to see if, in fact, a person is there. I would much rather find Abraham alive and well on his favorite Caribbean island, sipping his favorite drink. Unfortunately, our investigation leads us to believe he may have met a sinister death by sinister means. The house was rented to lawyer Howard D. Stitzel, who used it as his office. He's the same lawyer who handled the transfer of Abraham's house and assets to Dee Dee. That concrete slab in the backyard was 30 feet by 30 feet. Detectives started digging by hand, then eventually a backhoe was brought in. The concrete slab was broken into chunks and piled to the side. The next day, detectives confirmed that there indeed was a body buried five feet under that concrete slab, exactly where Dee Dee said it would be. Fingerprints were used to identify Abraham Shakespeare. On February 2nd, police arrested and charged Dee Dee with accessory after the fact. The judge set her bail at $1 million. The arrest affidavit was 22 pages long. The sheriff's office determined that Abraham was killed between April 6th and 7th and that he was the victim of homicidal violence. Detectives also determined that Didi had taken control of what remained of his lottery winnings and assets, totaling about $3.5 million. In it, Didi blamed everyone else for Abraham's murder, a drug dealer, a lawyer, Abraham's cousin, and even her own 14-year-old son, RJ. And the house she bought from Abraham? She admitted she never even paid him for it. An autopsy revealed that Abraham had been killed by two shots to his chest. He was wearing a jacket and no shoes. A towel was wrapped around his head. His clothes were stripped of zippers, buttons, and any other metal items, so metal detectors or ground-penetrating radar would not detect his remains. There was no money found on him. On February 19th, charges against Dee Dee were upgraded to first-degree murder without bail. Meanwhile, police gave Dee Dee's boyfriend, Shar, a lie detector's test, and he passed. The noose was tightening around Dee Dee. On December 28th, the judge made evidence against Dee Dee public. It contained secret recordings of her talking to a confidential informant and blaming someone else for Abraham's murder, 
and the plan to dig up his body and file the serial numbers off the gun used to kill him and then put someone else's fingerprints on it. Six years after Abraham won the lottery, Dee Dee was sitting in a courtroom fidgeting with the rosary hanging next to the handcuff on her left wrist. The doctor testified that although she showed signs of major depression and mild symptoms of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, neither prevented her from being competent to stand trial. She was completely lucid and showed no evidence of psychosis. During the trial, Dee Dee's behavior sometimes took center stage. She fidgeted, shuffled papers, and whispered to her lawyer. The judge warned her numerous times to control herself. Greg testified that Dee Dee had him rent a hotel room, and when he showed up, she was dressed in a surgical-type cap and mask and was typing a letter on a computer she had just purchased. The letter was addressed to Abraham's mother. Greg read part of it in court that said, I'm grown and I don't have to come back. The affidavit spelled out how Dee Dee managed to bury Abraham's body. She had bought a backhoe and paid her ex-husband to deliver it to the house in Plant City where there were no close neighbors. A few weeks later, she asked him to come back and dig a hole in the yard for trash and cement, which wasn't unusual. After he dug the hole, he left. Then a few hours later, she called him back to fill it in. It was getting dark, and he didn't see what was in the hole. He assumed it was chunks of concrete, like she said. Now remember the supplies Didi purchased at Walmart for digging up Abraham's body? The prosecutor played the store's surveillance video for the jurors. On Friday, December 7th, the prosecution rested its case. Didi's defense lawyer, Byron Hilleman, stated that there was no DNA, no fingerprints, no physical evidence linking the crime scene to Didi, and claimed someone else was responsible. The following Monday, Didi chose not to testify in her own defense, and after two weeks, her trial finally came to an end. The Tampa Bay Tribune reported that as the jury deliberated, the thunder rolled. Perhaps it was a sign. It only took them precisely three hours and eight minutes to find Dee Dee Moore guilty of first-degree murder for killing Abraham with her 38 caliber revolver. At 7.40 p.m., the judge was handed their verdict. He called her calculated, cold, cruel, and he said, Abraham Shakespeare was your prey and your victim. Money was the root of the evil that you brought to Abraham. Then he swiftly sentenced her to life in prison without parole. Outside, Abraham's sister Lynette told the media, the family was just glad. He gets to rest, we get to rest. In 2013, Dee Dee Moore was serving her life sentence at the Lowell Correctional Institute in Florida and gave an interview to 2020. She blamed her lawyers for not letting her testify and again she blamed a drug dealer for his death. In the fall of 2019, Dee Dee Moore wrote a handwritten letter to the judge. In it she apologizes, well sort of. She regrets her actions but still denies she murdered Abraham. This time she claims Greg Smith is the real killer and asks the judge for a new trial. As of this writing, there has been no decision. And the house where Abraham was buried? It has new tenants. In the corner of the garage, two names are carved into the cement floor, Dee Dee and R.J. Moore. There's a curved line underneath the two O's and Moore, making a happy face. Beside that is a handprint pressed into the cement, the fingerprints of a murderer.
Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Kara Knott. When she was a teenager, she took a self-defense class. Two years later, a cop pulled her over in San Diego. She sensed something was wrong, and she was right, and it cost Kara her life. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects and fasting studios and quick sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.